Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All righty. We left off somewhere in chapter one, somewhere between 35 and 40. 135, 40, somewhere in that ballpark. But we were talking about... Uh, the selection of the first disciples, and we talked last week that you know, there's two, two disciples with John the Baptist on the day that Jesus appears, and those two immediately, as they were trained, go immediately to Jesus because John identifies him. There's the Lamb of God, the guy I've been telling you about, the guy we've been preparing you and waiting for to come, and so he is here, so they go running over to him. Now, the interesting part, as we talked last week, is you know, Andrew, one of those two is identified, the other guy is not identified. But there's a good theory that it is actually John, our gospel writer, because John is not listed in any of these early disciples. In Matthew's gospel, uh, James and John are one of the first, right after Andrew and Peter. So there's a good chance that the, the unknown dis second disciple is actually John, our gospel writer. So don't get confused with all the Johns. So we got John the Baptist, John the Gospel writer, and then Andrew and Simon's father's name is John. <laughs> Those are three different characters. So it, it gets really, really confusing. So, but keep in mind that that's, that's what it was back then. They did not have last names. So you only had a name, and you were known as then to help distinguish if there are you know, uh, two, two gyms in the room, then we would have to know either who your father is, what town you were from, or certainly the Romans had uh, titles. So Pontius Pilate, that's not his name. Pilate is his name. Pontius is the, the Roman title, governor. Right? Governor Pilate. So it, it always goes like that. So that's what they do here. They, they, they identify. As we get into uh, uh, Nathaniel, asked, you know, well, we found the Messiah and he's Jesus of Nazareth. Right? Nathaniel says, well, can anything good come from Nazareth? Right? You know, if you tell me the town, that's going to help, help me to understand who he is. So apparently there was, you know, the name Jesus was very, very common in this day. So apparently you can only have one Jesus in Nazareth, so he's known as Jesus of Nazareth. Obviously there was a lot of Josephs, so he couldn't be jo Jesus, son of Joseph. Because that would be too confusing, there's too many of them. So it gets real squirrely like that. So we, we, we know that this is how they, they did things, because we keep seeing it, but we actually see it at the scene of Jesus standing before Pilate. Uh, you ever see the famous movie Barabbas? Uh, Anthony Quinn, right? Back in, I mean, what, 1955, 1958? Uh, you got to be old like me to remember that one. So, uh, but yeah, his name is used as Barabbas, but that's not a name. Barabbas is not a name. Barabbas is who he is. 
Bar is, is Hebrew for son of. So his, they're calling him son of Erebus. Bar-Abbas. Right? Son of Erebus. But what's his, what's his real name? That's his title. What's his name? I think it's Mark. One of the Gospels actually identifies, and what Pilate is trying to do is get Jesus off the hook. He's trying to get Jesus released. So at that, during that festival, they, they had the custom of releasing one of the Jewish prisoners scot-free. So whoever the crowd wanted, that's who got, got released. So Pilate pulls out the worst guy in prison. <laughs> A murderer, uh, he's probably a pedophile, uh, he jaywalked and spit on the sidewalk. This guy was really, really bad. But he was trying to get Jesus off the... So you don't want this guy walking around society, right? You want him in prison. I'm going to offer you this really nice guy, Jesus, or this other really awful guy. The gospel points out his name too was Jesus. Two guys named Jesus. So to help to distinguish... Pilate says, do you want Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus Barabbas? See? City, father. To distinguish. So you know which one you're talking about. So, like I said, yeah, we've got three Johns here, but they're all identified in distinct ways. So you just have to keep them straight. So John the Baptist is not a city or the father, but instead the title. What he does. So... We, the most common expression for Jesus is Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. <laughs> right? right? It's the title. Jesus Messiah. As we talked last week, you know, Christ, Christ is, the, is the, the Greek term for Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew term. Jesus Christ. It's a title. So, I guess... I, if I would lived in that day, I would be known as Jeff the Preacher. Because I think I'm the only Jeff in town named, you know, who, who preaches, right? Jeff the Preacher. So everybody would, would, would do that. Nowadays, we, we have middle names, last names, the whole nine yards. It, it, but you, you know as well, it gets really, really confusing when you have you know, juniors and thirds and fourths. You know, everybody has the same name you know, for several generations. You always give a nickname. Right? Oftentimes, the junior, you'll call junior. By the third one, most families revert to, all right, your, your name is you know, the same as your father and your grandfather, but we're going to call you by your middle name. Right? To distinguish who you are. So there, there has to be a distinguishing. We can't all have the same name. Right? We have to be able to understand who individually and uniquely we are. And that's what we see un unfolding here before us. So don't, don't get confused with, with so many Johns. Now, these two disciples, Andrew and the unknown disciple, possibly John the Gospel writer, go and spend the day with Jesus. And so Andrew goes home and tells his brother Peter, soon to be Peter, but Simon, that we, we found the Messiah. Now, how many of you have siblings? You got a brother, got a sister? Now, stop and think. If one of your brothers or sisters came to you and said, I have found the Messiah. <laughs> Don't get ahead of me, John. <laughs> right? what, what would be your reaction? 
Oftentimes, family is the worst person to get you to believe anything. <laughs> right? Jesus could not even work in, in Nazareth because they knew him, right? He could, his whole family, Mary was the only one who really believed in Jesus. Obviously, the other brothers and sisters didn't believe in him. They did after the resurrection, but not during his life. So, you know, family's tough. So I can just imagine that scene of, you know, Andrew coming home super excited. Simon, Simon, we have found the Messiah. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, you know, I mean, it just, you know, it's probably the last person you, you, you would believe. But Simon obviously caught a glimpse of something and said, all right, I want to see this for myself. And so Simon and Andrew show up now, and Jesus then immediately gives him a new name. See, so gives him a nickname, helping him to understand, you know, you are the rock, not yet. So Jesus simply puts forth, you know, his expectation of Peter. I expect you to become the rock, and as we understand later then, upon which I will build my church. That belief of you, you are the first one to declare that I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, so I will build my church upon that rock. So, but he gives them the name day one, minute one. Now, just so you know, that's a nickname. I did my research in the famous movie Rocky. His God-given name on his birth certificate was not Rocky. <laughs> right? But he had a rock-like character that... People gave him a nickname. You know, haven't you ever given anybody a nickname? Right? Just somebody does something funny and you just, you call them whatever, you know? Or some, you do something funny and you get a nickname and the nickname sticks. Right? So that's what's, what's happening here. Now, Are you saying Cephas is the nickname? Yes. Okay. Yes. You will be called Cephas. So, if you learn anything today, this is what I want you to learn. This is really, really important. Jesus demonstrates what discipleship is in how he interacts with these first disciples. He shows us clearly what, what he expects of us. So, let me, let me start and ask you this question. If you talk to somebody about Jesus, if you share Jesus with somebody, what is your hope and or expectation of that other person's reaction? What would you like to happen? I'd like them to believe me. Okay. They would take hope from what I say. Right. So in other words, they believe what you say. Okay. How's that working for you? Once in a while. Once in a while, yeah. Maybe, maybe 10, 15% of the time it works, right? Are those good odds? <laughs> I mean, doing anything, only 10 or 15% success rate is not real good. So a quarterback that only throws a reception 10 to 15% of the time and interceptions 85% of the time, is probably not going to be quarterback right along, right? Those, those aren't good odds. So look at what Jesus does. He doesn't do what we have a tendency to do. See, we think that we are responsible for arguing and convincing others to believe in Jesus. 
And my hope is that by now you've, you've realized how frustrating that is because it doesn't work. We aren't that smart, right? See, what we do is we try to prove Jesus by the Bible. Well, if you're talking to an unbeliever, they don't believe in the Bible. <laughs> so you are using a source that you don't have in common with that other person. We believe this, the other person doesn't. So look what Jesus does. Verse 38. Andrew and perhaps John ask a question. Where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and you will see. In other words, come be with me and you will see. Not here. You will see for yourself. See, we think we have to argue somebody into the faith. Have them sign on the dotted line, yes, I am now a believer in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And then we bring them to church. And then we bring them to the Bible study. Then we bring them to some musical event we're having here at the church. Uh, then we, we bring them to worship. Then we bring them to something. And Jesus doesn't argue with these people. As you get into Philip and Nathaniel, it's the same thing. Philip is, you know, comes and sees Jesus, goes and talks to Nathaniel, and Nathaniel says, well, can anything good come from, from Nazareth? That's a good point. I agree with you. <laughs> so, I'm not going to argue with you. But I will invite you to come and see. So, already in this first chapter, this is now week four. <laughs> Maybe we'll, we'll complete the, fourth, the first chapter today. Right? But after all these weeks and what we've learned so far, would this not have been a great place to bring somebody to? That rather than you trying to convince them of the reality of Jesus, to bring them to a group such as this when we're studying something like this, that is showing that Jesus is God, that's really what you're trying to convince that person of, and expose them to a group process where it's not one-on-one -on -one where you're drilling that person and they feel on the spot, but instead just to be part of a group, to grab a donut and to relax and just hear and witness how Christ has changed our lives. And then that person just might say, hmm, I think there might be something to this. We're not that good of salespeople. We're just not. And that's why I, I, I like our, our Methodist system of appointment of pastors as opposed to all the other churches and denominations around that, that have interviews. Hardly anybody on earth is a good interviewer. <laughs> we ask the wrong questions, we don't listen for the right answers, and then we put the pastor up in the pulpit and we have a trial sermon. And I don't know if you figured it out, but I certainly have. Every pastor has one good sermon. I'm waiting to like my last one to give it to you guys. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm going to keep you on the hook for a while until, until, until you finally get my good sermon. But you know, every pastor has one good sermon, and that's the sermon they get out for the trial sermon. So we, we're not smart enough to interview well, and we don't know what we're listening for anyway. And so they just keep hiring pastors, and it doesn't work out well, and then the church gets bad and everything else. And so I like our appointment system a whole lot better. 
none of us have any say in anything. <laughs> yeah. Those who are a lot smarter than us you know, understand what needs to happen and pastors are sent to, to and fro. So my point is, your goal is to, you, you use terms like, yeah, I want this other person to believe in Jesus. Well, what Jesus would say is, I want that person to become a disciple, a follower of me. Not a follower of you, a follower of Jesus. Now, we are going to hold hands with that person, help that person to stay close to Jesus. That's our role. But our role is not to convince that person to believe in Jesus. Because, I've said it before, I'll say it again, that other person has the Holy Spirit in them. All you're trying to do is help to expose that person so that the Holy Spirit will finally be heard inside that other person. We don't convert people. The Holy Spirit does. So all we're trying to do is get that person to see, yes, and hear about Jesus. That's probably not going to happen in a bar somewhere. There's a good chance it'll happen here. To bring people, just, will you come to church with me on Sunday? Will you come to, to Bible study with me? You know, if you promise to take them out to lunch after Bible study, I guarantee they will come. But you're trying to expose them to the faith. You by yourself is not enough exposure. All the studies indicate it takes at least seven exposures, seven contacts, seven Christians to make one conversion. You're one. You might be number one, number two, you might be number seven. But the beauty is if you're number seven, then that person is just about ready to go. And if you, rather than argue with that person, rather than you know, use the Bible as proof that they don't believe in any way, simply come and see, right? Come and you will see, Jesus says. That's what we need to do. So actually, our, our evangelism, our discipling others is very, very little. We have put way too much pressure on ourselves. We think we're a lot more important than we really are. Just bring them and let the rest of us do the work. If you let me know a person's coming, I'll try and get my good sermon out. <laughs> but like I say, you know, wouldn't it be great? You know, well, from what we've seen, how, how, how much John is pushing that Jesus is God for somebody who doesn't believe to actually see this and begin to, to work with that. We have somebody in the other Bible study group that has been coming and has been hearing this, who as yet does not believe. But over the last few weeks, you can see it start to go. Because as other people start talking about their relationship with Jesus, how Jesus has impacted their lives, they begin to think, oh, this is, this is real. You know, because these people wouldn't, wouldn't be wasting their time trying to lie to me and tell me about their experience with Jesus, their understanding of Scripture. They're just sharing out of love. That's what's going to make an impact in the life of the other person. But again, you've got to get them exposed to other Christians. This is a good place to do that. Not the only place, but that's a good place to start. So bring them Sunday morning. Bring them to Bible study. Bring them to something musical we're doing. But if you're frustrated that you've talked to this person you know, for years about Jesus and they're not doing anything, well... Try a different approach. I say try it. Try it Jesus' way. Just come and see. I can stand here arguing with you for hours. Because I guarantee I'm not going to win. Why would you start something that you know you're going to lose? 
Doesn't make sense. So I say stop the insanity, stop doing the same thing expecting different results. If it doesn't work, try a different, a different tack. And what we see in all these stories is just an invitation. Well, come and see for yourself. I can't convince you, but if you see it for yourself, don't we say, use the expression, seeing is believing? Not hearing is believing, seeing is believing. Let them see Christ in others. You have tried to show Christ in you, now help them to see Christ in others. So that's the first disciples. Go to verse 43. Let's try another, another pair of disciples. Now it says the next day. So if you keep a track, this is now day four of the Jesus ministry. And Jesus decides to travel north to Galilee. Now remember where they were before. Well, Israel is shaped like this, a little bit bigger in the state of New Jersey. And Jerusalem is pretty far in the south in the region called Judea. There are three regions. Judah, Judea, kind of middle east is Samaria, and then all the rest is Galilee. Nazareth is in Galilee. So Jesus is... John the Baptist was pretty much parallel across the Jordan River. Remember, it's given us all kinds of good demarcations. Across the Jordan River in foreign territory, but pretty much parallel with Jerusalem, way in the south. So they're over here. And Jesus says, let's go to Galilee, up here. And that's what they do. Now, it's not a mile or two, it's about 100 miles. It's going to take you a couple days. So they start traveling. And as they travel, they run into a guy named Philip. Look at verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Period. <laughs> Not follow me after I chew your ear off for three hours and trying to convince you of the reality of Jesus. Just come follow me and see for yourself. See how it works? It's that simple. Then Philip finds Nathaniel. And tells him that I found the Messiah. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> and now Nathaniel gives the answer that I would expect a lot more frequently. Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? <laughs> now, we do the same thing today. Nearby towns always have rivalries. I mean, it would be much the same as somebody burst in that door and said, I have found the Messiah, and he is from Everett. We would all go, right. <laughs> or he's from Ridge. Right? Come on. <laughs> Pick whatever town you don't like and fill in the gap from there. Right? But you see how it goes. The same was true back then. I, I, I suspect the... the the Nazareth and we're soon to discover Cana, you know, had a kind of a rivalry. You know, Nathaniel's from Cana and they're neighboring towns. So they must have had a real rivalry when they're football teams. Right? <laughs> Can anything good from there come, come from there? So go to the end of verse 46. Look how fast Philip learns. I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> Come and see for yourself. 
That's it. That's all you have to do. Could you do that? Three words. Come and see. So, in fact, we need to exercise our Miranda rights a whole lot more when it comes to evangelism. Everything you say, Canada, will be used against you. So say as little as you possibly can. Come and see. That's it. Wouldn't that be awesome? And, I mean, Philip has no idea what's going to happen. But he, they, they, they come to Jesus, and I, I think, you know, Philip kind of pushes Nathaniel toward Jesus. And Jesus tells, this is his first meeting of Nathaniel. And he knows who Nathaniel is. He knows things that Nathaniel is sure no mere human could know. See, he's seeing. He's witnessing for himself. Philip didn't, didn't, didn't tell him, well, come and see Jesus and he'll, he'll tell you who, who you are without ever, you ever identifying yourself. Just come and see for yourself. I know Jesus will do something, but I've got to get you close to him so you can see that for yourself. Come and see. And so after Jesus actually tells Nathanael who he is, truthfully, Nathanael, verse 49, responds, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. He gets it like that. Now again, I will ask you, if Philip argued for three hours with, with Nathanael, do you think that would have worked? No, seeing is believing. So come and see. So Jesus says, that Nathaniel believes because of the miraculous knowledge Jesus had about him. And then Jesus says, you ain't seen nothing yet. I would have loved to have seen Nathaniel's face when Jesus is bringing people back from the dead. <laughs> right? You know, healing lepers and you know, you know, the blind and everything else. It's like, wow. I would have just loved to see Nathaniel's face. Now, go back to verse 44. Because again, yeah, we have to let's get the geography right and the and the, the system that, that, that Jesus is working with. It's, it says these guys are from the town of Beth Bethsaida. Now that's a fishing community along the Jordan. So an awful lot of commerce is going on up and down the Jordan River. Every day, new people are coming and going. So interestingly, Bethsaida is pretty much the main headquarters of where Jesus establishes his ministry. This is the focal point. Most things happen in this general region because it is so cosmopolitan. Now, to demonstrate the cosmopolitan nature of this area, it says Philip and Nathaniel are from that area. Or Philip, at least, is, is, is from that area. Philip is a Greek name. Nathaniel is a Hebrew name. So we have you know, cross-cultural experiences here. Now, that's going to become significant because by the time we get to chapter 6, Jesus has all the disciples together, and they go back down to Jerusalem. There's some big party or whatever going on. And so there's people all around, but people are hearing about Jesus. And a Greek delegation out of all 12 disciples find Philip, the Greek guy, and ask him if they could talk to Jesus. But out of the 12, they find somebody I have a connection with. So they go to Philip. They don't go to Nathaniel, they go to Philip. So Jesus is, is yeah, covering all the bases here in his disciples. 
But now the fun starts. Nathaniel is not ever listed in the listing of disciples. If you're in the jam program, we teach the kids the song with all the disciples' names. And Aaron was sitting there last night and says, that's right, he's not in there. <laughs> because she teaches the kids how to you sing a little song with the 12 disciples. <laughs> now this presents a problem. Well, maybe not. The other Gospels record a disciple that we have no background on whatsoever, a guy named Bartholomew. Now see, we're giving guys nicknames here, right? So, possibly, Nathaniel is Bartholomew. Could be. Or, or, Luke chapter 10 reports that not only do we have the 12 disciples, there was another group of 70 that also followed Jesus. So we have two groups of disciples. So possibly Nathaniel wasn't one of the 12, but one of the 70. Don't know. Doesn't really matter. But if you were wondering why haven't I ever seen the name Nathaniel before, that's why. He kind of gets lost in, in the shuffle somewhere. Please. So then the Cephas, who we know as Peter. Simon Peter, yes. Yeah, see, that's what is kind of weird, but Simon, there was another disciple named Simon. But he's listed as Simon of Cyrene, right? So like I say, it's, it's always, there's always something. So it's either a title, it's either for, you know, who your father is, what town you're from, or your nickname. So Nazareth and Cana are closely located towns together in Galilee. So Nathaniel can't figure out how anything good can come from, from Nazareth. Interestingly, for about a hundred years previous to this time, there was a number of supposed messiahs from Nazareth. Now, history books recorded. A guy actually stands up and says, I am the Messiah, follow me. And the Jews figure out very quickly, no, you're not the Messiah. <laughs> and abandon him. But it kept happening. Time and time and time again. That's worse than a Messiah complex. That's actually saying, you know, you know I, I am the Messiah, so, so follow me. So Nathanael's reaction was compounded by the fact not only yeah, can anything good come out of Nazareth, but not another one out of Nazareth. But another town, maybe I'd believe it, but yeah, not from Nazareth. When every other week some guy is coming out of Nazareth saying, I'm the Messiah, this is just another whack job saying he's, he's the Messiah. So I, I, I can't believe it. But as soon as Nathaniel sees Jesus and has a very brief encounter with Jesus, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. He knows it. Good. I think these men were hunting for. They knew the Old Testament prophecy there would be a Messiah. And I think they were looking for a Messiah. <clears throat> I can't think that I'm going to walk up to some stranger on the street and say, come follow me, I'm going to church, let's go. And they're going to hop right behind me and come. Well, I, they I, have to have a desire or a something before that's going to happen. 
That is the big question. But studies, surveys, polls indicate a high degree in our country of spiritual searching. I, I believe that need is inherent in all of us. We are born with it. There's a, there's a God spot in our lives. If we don't fill it with God, when we fill it with something else, we know that it's wrong. The, uh, the prodigal son figured it out, right? Um, yes, and so as Jesus encounters a woman at the well, you know, and all these other people, you know, he's, he's tapping into that. He's helping people to realize that you really do have this need. So yes, part, part of it is, well, what this really means is, what Jesus is doing and what, what, what Philip does with Nathaniel is, you know, let's build a relationship. Before you probably even talk about Jesus, let's build a relationship. Everybody wants a friend, right? And that's what we do. So that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, come with me and, and, and be with me. Be my friend. And so that's what we're asking people to do. So yes, so you, you start in a relationship with a person, and since you're friends now, you obviously let the person know very early in that relationship, I'm a Christian, I go to church and everything, so hey, Sunday morning, I know you're not going to church, you're not doing anything, come with me to church. And you don't have to identify, I know you have a spiritual longing, <laughs> a spiritual hunger, but you know, they will likely come out of that experience and say, yeah, I didn't realize that, but that really, really helped me out today. No, it's not going to work for everybody. But I believe any other means or system we, we incorporate in our evangelism is only going to have a 10-15% success rate. I believe th this way of building a relationship and bringing that person to witness for themselves what Christ has done in the lives of others is going to have anywhere between a 75 and 85% success rate. I'm just going, going for the best odds. I can only say that because that's what Jesus does. I thought it was interesting, too, that I, I guess I always assumed that if people didn't know about the Bible, they definitely wanted to know about it. But, you know, from what you said, not everybody cares. Right. That the Bible says A, B, C, and they're doing EFG or whatever. Right. So I'm hearing you say if they're around people and watch people and, and see how people act and, and what they believe, then they might be more open to what's in this book because not everybody cares. Precisely. Book. So stop and think of what, what we're asking people to believe. <clears throat> when I ask you that, you said to believe in Jesus, not believe in the Bible. Now, the Bible is absolutely necessary, but it's not the first thing, right? Come and see Jesus first, then you will believe in the rest, right? But most Christians go with the Bible first. And we have our picket signs that have Bible verses on it and everything else, and so the people who are reading that couldn't care less about the Bible. It actually pushes them further away. People want a relationship, and that's what Jesus wants. Come with me. In other words, hang out with me. Andrew and this other disciple, what does he say? Come spend the rest of the day with me. Right? So that's why 
you take a person out for a cup of coffee. That's why you, you take them out for lunch. That's why, you know, come and be with me. Hospitality. You show them that you are open and wanting a relationship with this other person. As opposed to an intellectual conversation. Let me argue with you until I beat you down to the point that you finally submit to what I'm saying. Again, that'll work for probably 10% of the people. But that 10%, I guarantee you a year later, will not, not still be believing in Jesus. <laughs> That's a totally ineffective way to win people over for Christ. Build a relationship. Now, that's hard to do with, with a dozen people at one time. But if every one of us picked one and continually exposed them to Jesus, there's a better than good chance it's going to make a difference. There's no guarantee. But here's the beauty part of this. You still get maximum bonus points with God for making that effort, whether that other person accepts or not is not on you. What does Jesus say in the Great Commission? Go and make disciples. Don't say sit and wait for disciples to come to you. <laughs> you have to go and make them. This is how you make them. Now I'm kind of keyed up on this because I'm you know, Jan and I are t teaching a, a seminar on, on discipleship here at the end of the month. So uh, with you know, other pastors and le le leaders in the conference. So I'm kind of using you as my, 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 my crash test dummies on this. <laughs> but, you know, this is, I mean, it just it's sets, sets it out. So what I'm saying is we have made it way too difficult. We have, put, we, we, we have made it about us. My, my ability to convince you. My salesmanship. As opposed to simply tapping into the Holy Spirit inside that other person and allowing the other person to witness for themselves the glory of God. All four of these early disciples had to experience Jesus personally before they would believe. Now, as Judy's saying, those are people who are keyed up and ready to look. <laughs> but still, even somebody who's ready and receptive to argue with them, to try to you know, use the Bible as proof uh, to show how smart you are, or what a good Christian I am, will actually push them further away. And I think maybe that's why it also says in Scripture, work out for yourself your own salvation. Right? I can't do it for you. I can't, I can't convince you. But if you have a desire to, to grow in this faith, to mature in this faith, to become what Jesus wants you to be, yes, we can help you to do that. But we can't work out your salvation for you. Every individual has to do that for themselves. But everything I'm reading says there is an incredible understanding, a clear understanding in our country that people know they need it. 
And for some reason, they are looking other places. They are looking into the spiritual things. There are, you know, uh, Buddhism and Hindu is becoming very popular in this country. People are really liking that. And Christians, we just sit here in our churches and think that, well, I'm going to have a good opportunity. I'm going to argue somebody into the faith. And we wonder why we're losing our market share in this country. I mean, if what we're doing is not right, then we are the ones who have to change to fit into what people need. The message is the same, but quite possibly the way we, we communicate it changes. If you want, want to figure that out, start hanging out with a 16-year-old. Completely different way of thinking than you and I do. With all the electronics and everything else, completely different. Can't say it's wrong, it's just the way they communicate these days. So if we come in with a printed Bible <laughs> and start to beat them over the head with that, that's probably not going to work. At least get your cell phone out and have a Bible on there and, and talk to them that way. Show them that I am willing, as your friend, I am willing to, to enter into your world. As opposed to I'm going to stand over here and wait for you to come over here to me. See? Jesus goes to some. Some are brought to him. But he is available at that moment. For anybody who, who has that desire to, to be engaged. Which one of these disciples were disciples of John the Baptist? Andrew, and I would promote John the Gospel writer. Because John does not identify himself in here. Matthew, the other Gospel writers, you know, so it was Andrew and Peter were the first two, and then James and John were the second two, right? Well, James and John are just not mentioned in this Gospel at all. So John, shy guy that he is, he's not promoting himself, he's promoting Jesus, so he doesn't identify himself at all. But to have this mysterious second disciple unnamed is just bizarre. That's the best reason I can come up with why the name is not, not given to us is because John just doesn't want to put a spotlight on himself. You said John the writer of... The, this gospel. This right. Yep. Otherwise, he's, he's an unknown entity. And apparently never did become a disciple of Jesus which I think is harder to believe than to believe that the unidentified guy is John the Gospel writer. I mean, for John the Baptist to prepare him and then to spend an afternoon with Jesus and not, 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 not believe in Jesus, that's, that's a lot, <laughs> right? I just can't wrap my mind around that. So uh, I, think, I think it's John. Now go to verse 51, last, last verse of the chapter. Je Jesus says a lot. Actually, there's going to be 25 times in this gospel alone where Jesus is going to say, I tell you the truth. Or truly, truly, I tell you the truth. 25 times he's going to say that. Now, in Hebrew, literally, truly, I say to you, truly, I tell you, literally means amen. That's the definition of the Hebrew word amen. Truly, I tell you. Now, interesting, we put amen at the end of our prayers, right? Look what Jesus does. He puts it at the beginning of his statement. <laughs> so, 
truly I say to you, or I tell you the truth, or whatever that comes out as, that's one amen. But if Jesus starts, truly, truly I say, he's got, he puts a double amen at the beginning of the statement. In other words, you know, when you double something, is for emphasis. So that's really, really important. So single amen, important. A double amen, really, really important. Don't miss this. So the, the, the double amen, the truly, truly, that's what appears 25 times. And a bunch of other times, it's a single truly. So it could be 25 things Jesus is going to say, uh, the, the, the double emphasis. So we're going to have to pay, pay attention to what he's saying there. Now, he says, verse 51, he then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open. Now, he's having a conversation with Nathaniel. But again, English doesn't translate well. Uh, like love doesn't translate well, and and a lot of, and the, the you pronoun does not translate well in English. We can't tell if it's single or plural. In the original language, it is plural. He's talking to Nathaniel, but he switches it and uses the plural you, y'all. Y'all will see heaven open. Y'all will see angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now that's an interesting image, isn't it? Angels coming up and down. Write yourself a note to read Genesis 28. And there you will see, don't anybody start singing, a stairway to heaven with angels ascending and descending. That's way back in Genesis 28. <laughs> Now, John does something else interesting. Here, here in verse 51 is the first of 13 times John is going to use the expression son of man. In, in Daniel 7, the term son of man is a title given to a heavenly person who is given ultimate authority from God. So son of man is basically God appearing. It sounds like it's from man, but son of man Son of man and son of God are virtually identical terms. That's, that's what it means. Hope it goes well, Jude. So Smile when you go, go, go through this. It, it really helps the technicians and everybody sure. when, when they see happy patients. So. We're going to be praying for you. So son, son of man, get used to it. We're going to hear, hear that, that term a lot. Angels ascending and descending. What an image. You We'll see that. And as things unfold, you know, certainly at, at the crucifixion and resurrection, you see incredible things like, like that happening. And there goes chapter 1. Whew. It only took three and a half weeks. <laughs> what other thoughts, questions, comments do you have on chapter 1? Now again, chapter 1 is really important as a foundation, so we have to make sure that we understand the theology of this, what this really means in God terms. So what kind of questions do you still have hanging in the balance that we've lost you on yet? Good. That's John the Baptist being Elijah. I'm still confused on that. Okay. Explain that to me again. The Old Testament, Elijah didn't die, was taken up to heaven, 
so that his mission was he would be the forerunner to the Messiah. That was God's plan. So the people were keyed to look for first, before you look for the Messiah, is to look for... <laughs> Stuff spilling everywhere. Eh? <laughs> Need training wheels on that cup. <laughs> so they have to look for that first before the Messiah appears. So he didn't come back with the same name, but... Jesus says, John the Baptist is Elijah. And again, people were keyed up for that. I uh, pointed out, was it last week or two, two weeks ago, that even at the, on the cross, where he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that, you know, Eloi sounds a lot like Elijah, and with all the noise and everything around, is he calling for Elijah? Let's wait and see if, he, if Elijah shows up, because that will mean this is, this is all happening. So they just, they didn't recognize a that John the Baptist is Elijah, therefore, absolutely, in their mind, Jesus cannot be the Messiah because Elijah has not come first. So you have to recognize Elijah before you recognize the Christ. John's disciples, Andrew and I think this John, understood that. Right? So when Jesus, when, when John the Baptist says, there goes, there's the Lamb of God, whew, they immediately go over there because we have been, we know John the Baptist, you are Elijah, preparing us for the Messiah. So when you say the Messiah is here, there we go. So we are no longer your disciple, we become Jesus' disciple. Does that help? Yes. Okay. okay. No, that's really important. And of course, you know, we don't have to be concerned with that today because that was 2,000 years ago. And, you know, so our concern is not looking for the Messiah, but they were back then. And most people missed it. But it sounds like, you know, a fair number did get it. And uh, I would like to believe out of the, this additional group of 70 disciples, they were ones that kind of were along for that, that, that whole process. They might all have been uh, John the Baptist disciples that had been prepped that were looking for the Messiah, and as soon as John said, boop, there he is, vroom, they all went and, and followed Jesus, and John the Baptist is going to die pretty soon anyway. Uh, I'm a little bit, we kind of missed here a little, so I was doing a little, <coughs> going back, just looking at things a bit, and uh, when they asked, when they asked John the Baptist, then who are you, are you Elijah? Right. He said, I am not. He says, he denies it, right. Um, Jesus does the same thing. Are you the Messiah? He either remains silent or says no. So it's you know, it's it's a matter of timing. So you know, John the Baptist really. If I say I am Elijah, they're going to kill me right now. So my 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 purpose, my mission is is not accomplished yet until the Messiah actually comes. And when the time is right, those who are who need to recognize him as being Elijah will. Yes. Okay. Right. So, yeah, because he's trusting God to reveal that to whoever God God wants to. And again, you know, John the Baptist, a very humble guy, so this isn't about me. I'm just I'm just the tool of God. And I will do whatever whatever God God wants me to do. And he, he too knows that he doesn't have to reveal that, that it will be revealed by God. Yes. Right. And then John the Baptist says, yeah, you know, the dove came down and, and, and stayed with Jesus, uh, which had never happened before. So, yeah. That connection. 
So just yep, all the all the confirmations. That, that's what that's what this gospel does in the first chapter. It's just simply establishing that Jesus is God, and here's all the proof and evidence you need to verify that fact. But again, yeah, critical that Elijah had to come first. Has to, has to, has to. What's in verse 51, what's he really telling them there when he says you'll see heaven open and the angel of God ascending and descending? What's he really telling them? You're going to see wild and crazy things. <laughs> um, but you're, That's you're, referring, we see Genesis 28 is Jacob's dream. Yes. Um, so that was kind of a prophecy of what, what would happen. But Jesus now... When, when the plan finally culminates in the crucifixion and resurrection, that that's when you know, the heavens open up, grace overwhelms the world, and just all, all that happens. The, the floodgates open, I guess, would be a, a good way to, to describe it. That uh, up to that point, uh, you know, it was kind of a little trickle, but now just yeah. open the Hoover Dam and let her go. And uh, it's, it's an overwhelming uh, experience. Uh. <laughs> I suppose if you look far enough ahead, they could look toward the end time. Yes, whenever, yep. Whenever Jesus does ascend, heaven, heaven descends and so forth. So, but what, what that means is the crucifixion and resurrection is the most important demarcation in history. So what happens before that and after that are radically different. So at the crucifixion and resurrection is starts the process of all of that throughout the rest of time. So it's not a, just a, a one-day thing. It's something that begins and continues on. So we often talk about you know guardian angels. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot of a lot of interplay between us and angels and all that. And so yeah, they're coming up and down. And yeah, we remember when we did the, the Daniel study a couple years ago. And you know, there's there's angels for 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 provinces and states and territories and all of that. And uh, you know, Gabriel was in a big big fight with a super bad angel and had to wait for Michael to come and help him and all that. And so just all kinds of you know bizarre angel things. But yeah, that kind of I mean that was had been happening, but now with Jesus, it's it's way accelerated uh, at a much higher degree. Any other thoughts on chapter one? Wade into the water here a little bit. Wade away. <laughs> it's millennial thinking, but in, in talking over all of these things, something Judy said earlier about those who were searching. By now, thirty years have passed since the birth of Christ. Mm-hmm. Surely all those stories about the angels appearing to the shepherds and all that stuff has been talked about. It got recorded somehow. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I'm not surprised that there weren't other, <laughs> as like today, the false Elvises. Well, I'm sure they were, <laughs> they were claiming to be that guy that was born 30 years ago. And so it doesn't surprise me that there are people that are searching for this Messiah that was born. They had heard about it. They had heard about the, the 12-year-old at the temple. I'm sure many of these stories had made their way around, amongst the people. So it, to me, it's not, you know, it is simply that John the Baptist going, this is the one. This is really the real, this is the real one. Uh, and, and, and yes, so yes, many people may have been searching for this one they had heard about from 30 years ago. 
is now appearing in, in that 30-year-old version. Yeah, it does make you wonder what kind of stories came out of Bethlehem. Right. Um, like I said, it was important enough that it got recorded. It says that the shepherds, after they saw Jesus, told everybody. Right. Right, so yeah, so the, obviously it wasn't a big secret, but um, I, I, I think those personal stories would have been more powerful than people knowing the scriptures. Because in this time, first of all, virtually everyone was illiterate. And from what we know of the worship practices in this day, it was very corrupt. Uh, it was uh, uh, very self-centered. Uh, so the, the religious leaders are teaching what they want taught. Uh, we also had a period of that in the Christian church. We call it the, the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, right? Where the church basically tells you nobody knew, before the printing press, no one could read or anything like that, so the priest would stand up and tell you whatever they want, and okay, just a bunch of mindless sheep. So they weren't being taught these prophecies, right? right? Because that's against our interest. <laughs> if we get you looking for somebody else, we want you to look into us and listen to everything we say. But these other stories of personal interactions with, yeah. Bethlehem at, at age 12 and there obviously was a lot more coming out of Nazareth with right. Je Jesus as a kid that we just don't have recorded here but yeah that would have piqued some, some curiosity and interest but, but interestingly you know, the, the people of Nazareth did not accept Jesus right. they pretty much ran him out of town on a rail I kept looking back on the map as to the location of these places because as has been said many <coughs> hundreds of times the, the servant help always talks they know more than talk about it. So consequently, while the rabbis and so forth were preaching, they did not want to, you know, they certainly weren't discussing that Christ had been born. Right. Yeah. He, didn't, he hadn't come yet, as far right. as they were concerned. But the servant help knew that, knew the stories. And which is why I think that all the general populace at that point was searching for. And that's why, I guess, why often uh, the inner circle of the, the and Jewish religion would check out each one of these individuals because mm -hmm. they they heard the stories too, and it just had to make sure. Well, now nah, that it's not real. Now they was they couldn't with this one. The other factor that we've not mentioned yet is the Holy Spirit. Right. And, you know, scripture makes it abundantly clear. The only way we can understand any of this is because we are allowing the Holy Spirit to teach it to us. We can't understand these unbelievable things of angels coming up and down stairs and all that jazz you know it's all the holy spirit in us so everybody back then had the holy spirit in them and the holy spirit was saying you know be watching for the messiah be watching for the you know or watch for elijah to come and then then the messiah and yeah was always speaking the truth and so yes a certain percentage of people are going to naturally do that small percentage but nonetheless and yes, then perhaps some of these other stories made an impact on a couple other people that got them thinking about, well, maybe I ought to start looking for that. But yeah, it was just from a number of different angles, but the people back then are the same as today. You know, there's, there's a spiritual hunger that can only be filled with God. And people keep tracking out all these other avenues, all these different religions and all these different mechanisms to fulfill that void in their life. And they keep finding that only lasts for a short time, and then I'll move on to the next thing. And for some reason, Christianity is the last thing they will try. 
and you know, there's just a, a real, a real dismay uh, and irritation with organized religion these days. Now we basically shot ourselves in the foot uh, for quite a few years now, and so the general populace around us, you know, looks looks at us with a very jaundiced eye, and uh, because we've what we have promoted, what we have revealed to people about who we really are. People look at us and say, I don't want to be a part of that. Yeah, you people don't have any, any sense at all. So they check out other religions. They check out all these spiritual things. They you know, just do all these you know, bizarre things to fulfill that need within them. That's why I'm saying we have to do a better job at evangelizing, at discipling, at getting people started in the process to understand who Jesus really is. Now, I would well suspect that if you think back to your faith history, that's exactly what happened to you. I know it did with me. My parents dragged me to church. Now, I'm not going to tell you this stuff. Go, go watch some other people do it. <laughs> and by the time I was a teenager, it started to make sense. So a constant exposure to it has got to make a difference. It just has to. So it's just coming and seeing the greatness of God. Not the greatness of me, the greatness of God. I'll be willing to step off to the side and in fact as, as John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, right? That needs to be our attitude. But I just want to be your friend and I want to I want to expose you to the things of God. Any other thoughts in chapter one? Do you have any idea what the percentage of Christians in the world is as opposed to Buddhists and Hindus? The numbers are not easy to calculate. Um, But by all measures, Christianity is a minority religion. We're not we're not the dominant religion in the world. Yeah, Buddhist and and Hindus, you know, account for at least a billion apiece. Uh, quite quite a bit more, and there's what close to eight billion people on earth, so right there is a quarter of the earth. In just those, those, those two religions, um, the Christian numbers are are tough because, um, well, the Catholics claim an awful lot, but those numbers are really skewed because if you're born into a Catholic family, you're claimed as, as Catholic your entire life. Catholics don't 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 transfer membership. <laughs> so my wife grew up Catholic; she's still on the books, right? So once you're Catholic, you're always Catholic. So a lot of people have left the Catholic Church, but they're still counted. So that's that's going to mess up some numbers. And uh, so it's it's simply in the accounting. But yeah, it's there's there's a lot. But we're talking billions of people. Um, I don't believe there's there, there there's not a, there's not a billion Christians on earth. See, I never knew that. Yeah. I Thought Christianity was a primary religion. You would like to think so, wouldn't you? <laughs> but again, it's in you know our advertising, our, our 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 promoting the faith that we've we've just we've we've done a terrible job of that for the last 50, 75 years, and just assuming people will come on their own, and so we've laid back. And I mean, just in our country alone, you can see what's what's happened. I mean, most of us are more than 
40 years old, we can, <laughs> we can look back and, wow, remember what it was like when you were a kid. It's way different now, isn't it? Right? Just, in, just in the, the attitude and opinion of people in terms of the Christian faith is 180 degrees from what it was when, when we were young. Um, so, yeah, that's just, and we, we've allowed that to happen. But again, with people's need to fill the void spiritually, since we're doing a terrible job at discipling, bringing people to Christ, they're going to find something else. And so all we see around us now are what, what they have found. And it's not very good. Bottom line is, you know, we, we, there's a, a, a lot of talk and, and discouragement over, over all the shootings and all the, these violent crimes we see and just all, all this terrible stuff. And my, my response is, well, it has to be that way. When you take God out of the lives of individuals, Jesus is the light of the world, what is left? Darkness. You take light out, what you have left is darkness. And this is what darkness does. This is what evil does. By definition, this is what evil does. I mean, there is no other option. <laughs> because people are not good on their own. <laughs> right? We're born into sin. So, if we don't recognize that, we just think if people are by nature good, then, then we're not going to share Jesus with others. Now you're good enough. Well, this is what we got now, folks. <laughs> so the only way we're going to turn this around is to get Jesus into, bring the light back into people's lives. Uh, I doubt if we could do that with the whole nation overnight, but you might be able to do it with one person who will do it to another, who will do it to another, do it to another. I mean, what's, my, my math isn't too good, but if you, if, you, if you doubled a penny every day at the end of a month, I forget how many millions of pennies you would have. So, if I talk to Jim, that's one. Jim talks to one, but I'm going to talk to another day two, right? So there's four, and then now there's four of us. Four of us talk to one more. That's eight. Eight of us talk to one more. You know, keep doubling, doubling. So it's not 16, now 64, right? 64 doubled is thousands, and then... And you're getting into millions very, very quickly, and you know, by the end of the first week, you're up to a million. That's how we're going to change things. So the goal is to get the light back in the lives of individuals and, and our whole nation. We've allowed the darkness to overtake us. No, I'm not specifically talking about the election. <laughs> As a general... General society, general culture. So yeah, so every week now, there's a shooting. Duh. What do you want? Yeah, we don't, we do, we, we don't allow Jesus in schools anymore, uh, in government buildings, uh, just all this. Just pull them out, pull them out, pull them out. Well, pull out light. What remains is darkness. How's that for fun and exciting? Well, let's get a little, little bit into chapter 2 here. We can at least get, get a start and see what happens here. So, what we saw in chapter 1 is John walking us through four consecutive days. Now look at how chapter 2 starts. On the third day. We're not going back to day 3. He's adding three more days. 
So we had four and three, seven. On the seventh day. Does that ring a bell with you? Okay, so go back to creation. God created in seven days. Now on the seventh day, look what Jesus does. He does the opposite of rest. He performs his first miracle. Right? So seven is one of those holy numbers that represents completeness or wholeness. So here is a completion of what you need to know. So the first, first seven days are establishing Jesus is God. Now let me verify that for you in a sign, a miracle. And the miracle is performed at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, neighboring city to Nazareth. Now, it says Jesus' mother was invited to this wedding. And Jesus was invited. And it also says the disciples were invited. What? The disciples have only been around for like three days. <laughs> but they, they're invited too. I don't understand that. But what you need to understand is that Jewish weddings lasted between five and seven days. That's day and night, 24 hours a day. If somebody was traveling and showed up at 3 o'clock in the morning, you had to be there to receive them and welcome them as your guest. Precisely. Yeah, if, you, if, if you've ever had to prepare for a wedding, and we've had five girl weddings, right? And so we have to you know, get, get reservations and, and calculate all the food and just everything that has to happen. I mean, as a good host, you want to make sure everybody has everything they need. You have to think of everything before the blessed day arrives. If you had, you know, that's just for you know, a four-hour period, right? If you can imagine... Extending that to five to seven days, yeah, there's no way you could you can anticipate because guess what? They didn't have a computer back then. They could not send out emails to get invitations out. Right? So it was just word of mouth. And people didn't RSVP. So just anybody and everybody could show up. And you had to be ready for everybody. So obviously this was a popular family or whatever, and a lot of people showed up and the wine runs out. So Mary informs Jesus that the wine is gone. And as you keep reading, we understand that, that certainly Mary was at least implying that Jesus should do something about it. Now something more than Jesus, why don't you run down to the local liquor store and get a couple more bottles of wine? Right? The implication is, Jesus, I know you are God. I know you can take care of this. That you could help these poor people in their moment of embarrassment. I mean, this was a huge social embarrassment to run out of wine at a wedding feast. Huge. Jesus responds in a kind of unusual way, doesn't he? Rather than say, yeah, mom, you're right. He kind of brushes her off. <laughs> uh, you know, my, my dear woman. You know, is a, is a formal statement. So what Jesus is doing is he's, he's, he's not being mean. He's simply reminding his mother of, their, of her role in this. Mom, I am not under your authority. By the way, I am God. <laughs> 
right? So, I am not under your authority. So, I'm not, I'm, I'm not doing what you tell me to do. The time, when the time is right, I will do what is the right thing to do. But not because you tell me to do it. So, Mary drops the issue. But she does tell the servants, if Jesus tells you to do anything, make sure you do it. <laughs> and sure enough, almost right away, Jesus jumps in, right? He does basically what Mary told him to do anyway. So the servants are instructed to fill six large stone jars with water. Now, the stone jars are significant. There's a lot of, a lot of hidden meaning in this, in this miracle. It seems kind of a, a blasé kind of miracle, but there's a lot of deep meaning, and again, establishing Jesus as God. So stone jars were used for religious purposes, for purification rites. And these stone jars, to, to be that, would have been at least 20 gallons apiece. Six times 20. Did the math on that too? That's 120 gallons of wine. Think 120 gallons of wine will keep you going for a while? Especially near the end of the wedding reception? In other words, there's going to be some stuff left over. So the wine is excellent, is the best they've had and there's an overabundance of it so there's six jars but six is a bad number right six is the incomplete number six 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 right that's a bad number so what Jesus is saying is I'm taking all this abundance and now I become the seventh stone jar. I am now the completion of this, you know, using these religious objects, this, I am the fulfillment of everything you know. And I am coming with an incredible, overwhelming 120 gallon blessing of God's grace. 120 gallons is a lot of wine. A lot of wine. So after, the normal custom was, you get the good wine out first while people's palate is sensitive enough to, to benefit from it. After a lot of drinking and eating and everything, bah, you get out anything and people won't know the difference. So their amazement was, now, they didn't give the credit to Jesus. They gave the credit to the host. Right? You saved the best for last. Well, we know the best is Jesus. Right? So now, that's what I'm saying. So that's the fulfillment. The culmination of all that God has done so far is found in Jesus. This was the first of his miraculous signs. And that's where we'll pick it up next week. We'll pick it up in verse 11. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.